Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. Tonight, one of the coolest photographers, maybe that has ever existed, doing everything from music to film to capturing stuff on the streets, Matthew Baton. Matthew, how are things? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm really good. Um, You've had a hell of a summer capturing the streets and and the um, Chappelle summer camp. Let's start with the streets for a minute, though. Being on the streets this year and documenting the protests, do you feel like this is different from other times, and do you see real change coming from this? Well, you know, being out in the streets, I definitely felt that there was something different to previous protests I'd been a part of as a protester. Uh, you know, this time I went out as a protester and photographer and um, pretty much uh, put myself in the middle of a pretty, I mean, the, the first few days of the uh, George Floyd protests were, were pretty crazy in LA, you know, a lot of destruction and a lot of uh, people who just had enough, you know, and I myself was one of those people who had enough, so it was interesting to be there documenting as well as echoing the feeling of the people on the streets and, you know, really uh, putting myself in the front lines. And I think it was on the first day that I went out, I got shot in the leg uh, by a police officer with a rubber bullet, which was quite uh, unpleasant of an experience, you know, and it made me realize that, you know, nobody was really safe from, I mean, even here we are protesting police brutality and then the police are, you know, brutalizing protesters. I mean, it's not the same as shooting people and killing people, but it was still really interesting for me to see that the people were still there regardless. Like, you know, when I went to the front lines, it was because a black woman came up to me and said, we need white people in the front lines. We need white people standing between black bodies and and so I went there, you know, without hesitation. I never imagined I'd get shot in the leg with a rubber bullet, but there were people being shot in the face and people, you know, with rubber bullets and people shot in the chest. So, I mean, I got really lucky. But what I felt being there was that it was the nucleus of something new. It did feel like something different was happening. And, uh, you know, I was hoping, because this was back on May 30th when I first started shooting protests, I was hoping that this would mean that maybe, you know, come election time, we would see a change, even though my gut feeling at the time was like, yeah, Trump will get reelected. So it's nice to see that it actually helped um, get Trump out of office. And, you know, for me, it just felt like a, a very passionate project. You know, I turned it into a fundraiser and uh, for the movement and had a lot of success with that. And, you know, so it was, it was definitely, I guess the difference from previous protests and what felt like maybe change would happen is that there was a lot of youth, there there was a lot of young people protesting. And I feel like in the past it was more, you know, people my age and older people and uh, people who had been there protesting for decades. So that was definitely a, a very positive change, seeing the youth showing up in such huge volumes. Are you feeling positive with the new Biden administration coming in that we're going to see real change? Or do you think that we're going to continue to have to have this fight 
again for essentially the next four years and, and even past that? You know, systemic racism is, is very built into this country. So I don't think Biden coming in is going to suddenly make everything go away. You know, these police officers that were there, uh, Trump rallies and, and shooting, you know, innocent black men and women all over the country are still police officers when Biden comes in. You know what I mean? Nothing, nothing changes on the street level. Nothing changes in police. I mean, hopefully they will reform. You know, I know Kamala Harris uh, has a, an interesting background, too, with, with police and, and all that. So, you know, it's, it's going to be on them to try to make these changes. And, you know, I don't really trust politicians in general. You know, I actually really like Bernie Sanders and, uh, because he, he was like the only honest politician out there, you know, and, and uh, America wasn't going to let that happen. DNC wasn't going to let that happen. But so I'm happy Trump is out of office. I'm happy, you know, Biden and, and Harris got elected. But I don't think it makes that big a difference, you know, on the on the in the big picture rather unfortunately but you know hopefully they you know now we need to hold them accountable and, and make sure that they actually do something to change all this built in well you've been hanging out with a lot of comedians these days do you feel like they're taking over that revolutionary spirit that music once held or do you still think that music actually has the currency that it that it once did music is always going to be you know the soundtrack to our lives so i think music is always going to be in our ears so to speak you know so i don't think i don't think that's going away but because we're in a global pandemic um you know we're not able to see live music as much you know there there are streaming concerts and, and things like that but i think comedy just speaks you know, and, and on a level of someone like Dave Chappelle, who, you know, I've spent a lot of time with, I've been very fortunate to work with, uh, you know, it's somebody who's speaking from the gut directly to the audience, you know, so there's no filter, there's no political correctness, there's no wokeness, there's no, you know, I'm going to be careful what I say because, you know, I might offend somebody. You know, so you used to have that with music, you know, and for me, it's like, you know, before the invention of Pro Tools, you know, you could actually see who the real musicians were, you know, and before computers and all that. Now music has kind of gone into a place where, you know, you you can create a number one hit without the artist even being in the studio. And then, you know, they'll come in and do their vocals and they'll fix the vocals and blah, blah, blah. So I have no interest in any of that. So I'm more of a, you know, soul, funk, jazz kind of guy. I, uh, I just like authentic music. You know, for me, classical music and jazz is the ultimate form, you know, because those are people who are actual musicians and, and, uh, you know, on, on a very high level. And so comedy is the same. There's a lot of fluff, you know, there's a lot of, of comedy specials that I can't get through that I can, you know, I just start and that's five minutes. I lose interest because they're trying to entertain, you know, what I like about, you know, the, the examples of people like, like Dave or Bill Burr, you know, or obviously the, the Richard Pryors and George Carlin in the past is that they're not trying to entertain you. They're just, talking they just happen to be these you know brilliant minds and happen to be very funny while telling their truth you know but 
they play a very important role. They're like, you know, modern day philosophers and, and uh, psychologists in a way, you know, and, and there, there's no filter like, you know, politics has filters, news has filters, and, and, you know, music in a lot of ways now has filters. So I really enjoy the craft of uh, a good stand-up comedian because they, that's where really you get your inspiration, your news, and, and you know, constructive criticism. And so, you know, I just find myself listening to old music mostly, but it's, you know, once in a while, uh, you know, there's still like really good stuff coming out. Like anytime Jack White does anything, I'm excited, you know, as excited as, as any old record I could put on. You know, Ben Harper, I just worked with on a beautiful new record. I mean, I'm interested in musicians. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that if, if musicians are real musicians, I think they're still talking to the people. The, the other stuff, the fluff, you know, is, is just, uh, for entertainment's sake. And I think the change now is we don't need just entertainment we need entertainment to have value and 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 strength at the core and and education you know we need entertainment to educate us as well if that makes sense yeah of course well i want to take you way back now did you find growing up in paris made it easier for you to get that fix of art that you were looking for and what were some of those initial influences well yes i mean growing up in paris you know i happened to uh to spend my every Sunday is pretty much with my father going to, you know, the flea markets in Paris. And I found pretty much all of my inspiration there between, you know, finding vinyl albums. And I mean, it was just vinyl at the time. There's, you know, uh, eight tracks were over and CDs haven't come up yet. But um, I think, you know, growing up in Paris, you just walk around and, you're inspired, you know, you just see a building and as you walk by, it'll say, you know, here lived uh, Emile Zola, here lived, uh, here lived Balzac, or, you know, Camille Claudel sculpted in this place. I mean, it's like there's so much history and so much true artistry. You know, I see Paris as the kind of center of the world for that. And, you know, the, the poets and, and uh, prose writers. And so for me, it was, it started with, you know, people like Man Ray uh, and the Dadaists, which, you know, from, from Tristan Zara and, and Francis Picabia, um, Dali, you know, I love surrealism. I was very influenced by surrealism early on in my life and, you know, always wish I could have been a real artist, like a painter. But, uh, you know, I didn't have that talent, but... So I use all that to inspire my, you know, my own work and, and uh, have a little, have a little DNA from, from the French surrealists and, and not just French surrealists, but all the surrealists, you know, and, uh, and uh, I think, you know, Paris has so much of that, that just growing up there, it's, it's in the air, you know, you just, I used to go to museums all the time, I used to go to art galleries all the time, I, I, you know, that big art collector. And uh, so, you know, just surrounded by it and, and definitely very influenced by it. Since you're such a visual artist yourself, did you find yourself buying albums in your youth that were attributed to the album art a little bit more in your mind? Or were you really searching for certain sounds and attitudes? 
No, I actually tell you the truth. When I started buying records, I wasn't even, it wasn't even about the music. It was about the covers. And I used to buy records based on their covers. And, you know, as, as a kid, I used to think like, how cool is it to be, you know, the person who makes the album cover and who creates the visual that will either, you know, influence the person to buy it or deter them from buying it, you know? And, uh, so. I, I discovered some of my favorite records from the album covers, you know. I mean, sometimes you'd be very surprised with like an album like I bought, uh, The Source by Jimmy Scott, you know, used to be known as Little Jimmy Scott, you know, and, and it's like this beautiful woman with an afro on the cover. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, what, what is this? And, you know, and you listen to it and Jimmy Scott sounds like a woman. And I was confused. And it turns out, no, that's not him on the cover because the label thought he was too weird looking to put him on his own cover so they would hire models. You know, they, that happened a lot in the, in the, especially in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting way to discover something amazing, but thinking you were going to pick something else up. And uh, so, yeah, I, I got a lot of, you know, I have a big vinyl collection uh, that I started probably when I was nine years old. And, you know, there's so many of the records I remember, like where I was when I picked them up. You know, I remember exactly when I discovered something, and, and so that's a very unique experience that I attribute to the cover up. Cover up. Well, how has film had an influence on you over the years? I mean, film. You know, it's funny as uh, you know with the recent events of uh, you know which we can get into. Of, breaking both my arms in an accident this summer and still recovering from that. I've been forced to, you know, by doctors to sit on the couch a little more because after I broke my arms, I worked for two and a half, two months straight and uh, kind of worsened my condition. So now it's like uh, I have to heal from these broken bones. And so I've been, you know, watching a lot of films and, and in the same way as the record, I've been on this Clint Eastwood band for like two weeks now where I'm re-watching like every Clint Eastwood movie ever. You know, from the Dirty Harry movies to the, to the Westerns to the 80s and 90s and all this stuff. And, and it's funny to have flashbacks from, like, being a kid in France, you know, watching The Enforcer or Dirty Harry, uh, Southern Impact and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, remembering once again, like, where I was, what I wanted to do. Uh, Werner Herzog is another one, you know, that I'm kind of getting back into because just, you know, the movie like Fitzcarraldo, which I watched again yesterday morning and then I watched the documentary about it. You know, you see these crazy adventures and it's like it, it again, it, it influences you because, you know, you get inspired by something, you see something that's possible, like a movie like Fitzcarraldo by Herzog, you know, you're like, how the hell did this guy pull this off? I mean, he's basically dragged a boat over a mountain in the Amazon, you know, I mean, it's like, so it influenced me in the way that, you know, things are possible, you know, it's not just being influenced by the style, which I definitely, you know, can be influenced by the style of films, but like, you know, seeing what, what a person is capable of doing is, is more inspiring than anything, you know, so, of course, as a kid, I also discovered, you know, and got really obsessed with the whole black exploitation movement. I got really into Bruce Lee movies, you know, a lot of these kind of B movies I was, I was really into because they were visually so striking. And another thing that led me to, to 
watching a lot of films was just like the record album covers with the poster art. I was obsessed with poster art and started collecting at a pretty young age, started collecting black film posters. And uh, as we speak, I'm actually gathering some of my uh, black exportation posters for the, the poster house museum in New York is doing an exhibit next year and using all my posters. So, you know, that's the other thing is like things that I've been collecting over the years keep, keep, being put to a good use, you know, and, and so uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo, you know, the French actor, that was like my first hero from his, all these action movies, like, you know, Le Professionnel and Clique uh, Voyou, I don't know all the, all the English titles because, you know, I grew up in France, but, you know, all that stuff has such an influence on me. And, uh, of course, you know, I, I got into like Truffaut and Godard and all those, you know, those movies, the uh, new wave. And Del Mondo is a big part of, you know, with uh, 400, I mean, I'm sorry, with uh, Abu Tsuf Breathless, you know, with, with a movie like that, had uh, a lot to do with, like, me figuring out what cool was, you know, and I remember, like, okay, this, this guy is cool, like, I want to be cool, you know, and then you would see a movie uh, like Elevator to the Gallows uh, with the score by Miles Davis, you know, and be like, wow, this is, like, the perfect combination of film and music, and I think there, there's a lot of movies, you know, that, that had that. In a lot of cases, films became, I think, more successful because of their scores, you know, like movies like Shaft or Superfly, you know, like the Grace Mayfield soundtrack, Shaft of the Advocate soundtrack. I think, you know, when people got into music so much and made them see the film, you know, which normally it's supposed to be the other way around. So I think that perfect combination, you know, film and music, had a lot of influence on me growing up. You know, I could talk for hours about uh, movies, you know, but they, they, um, I think it was like the, the, it also ignited this collector thing in me, which, you know, my dad is a collector too, so I know I got it from him, but, you know, just uh, wanting to have everything, uh, you know, <laughs> about a film. And I think the first time uh, I was like mesmerized my film it was the first time I went to the movie theater was with uh, I think with my class when I was a kid and we went to see Fantastic Planet um, and, and you know it was probably I didn't see it when it came out but because that was it probably came out like in 73 the year I was born but um, you know they would show these movies again and again I'm pretty sure it came out in certain uh, 73. So I probably saw it in like 78 or 79 in a the theater. And if you haven't seen uh, Fantastic Planet by uh, René Lalou, it's, it's a masterpiece of animation. And the music by Alain Dorague is like an incredible, incredible soundtrack. The guy ended up being, you know, Serge Ganford's partner, Serge being my first musical hero growing up in France. So I'd like, I guess with me, everything is connected. You know, like you could, you could think like, four different things that you think have nothing to do with one another and I'll somehow find a connection. And I think that's something I've really, uh, really enjoyed, you know. So that movie, and then as far as fantastic cinema, so to speak, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma film, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, something my dad turned me on to when I was a kid and like, because he really liked the music by Paul Williams. And it just like, fucked me up. I mean, it just really, like, I've probably seen it 150 times by now, but, you know, it's one of the things that wowed me, you know, 
And uh, so I think those two movies have a lot to do with uh, influencing me probably to become a graphic designer and photographer, uh, you know, Orfeo Negro, Black Orpheus, that's another one that I consider to be like, you know, one of my favorite, top three favorite films of all time. Uh, so much color and, the, you know, the Bossa Nova, Brazilian music. I guess I can't see film without its score. You know, maybe I'm not into silent films as much for that reason. You know, I love them, but I'm not like obsessed with them because there's that element of film and music that's so important to me. I'm glad that you mentioned cinema, though, because going to the cinema in France is almost a religious experience. Did you find that to be the case when you were growing up there? I mean, it was just going to the movies, but for sure, it was like, you know, every time was like very exciting. It was an event, you know, it's like now we just take it all for granted. But as a kid, I remember when I went to see Fantasia, you know, the, the Walt Disney movie, uh, I mean, same thing. That was like another crazy, crazy thing of like, holy shit. You know, I know it was like made in like 1940 or something, but it was re-released in the 80s. And, you know, it was a a big, big thing. So we would go, it's like, you know, almost like people go to the, the opera, which I did as well. You know, I used to love doing that stuff too. And I was just a weird kid, you know, a little, that my tastes were too old for my age, you know, but, um, so I, I, I was always searching for some kind of meaning to life and I find, I would find it through art, you know, I would see something and be like, ah, this is what life is all about, you know, talk about having a, uh, a goal, you know, to, to understand what your existence is about. And then you'll see something that will mesmerize you and feel like, ah, I get it. You know, art is probably the reason I'm here, you know? And everybody's got a different purpose. Somebody might cure cancer. Somebody might, you know, come up with the, the tiles that are going to save your house from leaks or whatever it is, you know. I know I have a purpose in, in keeping art alive, you know. And, and a lot of it has to do with keeping older art alive. You know, I work on a lot of legacy projects and box sets and, and reissues and things like that for that purpose. And I love, you know, being involved in all that. So, yes, that answers your question. Of course. Can you take us through how that first visit to America and specifically Los Angeles helped to change your life? Absolutely. I mean, I remember, I believe, so my mom had moved uh, in 82, so I was nine years old. And, you know, she, uh, she that was a big shock, you know, like you you mom moving to the U.S., but she moved there, you know, to kind of set up a life for us here, so she went ahead of us. We played with my dad, and um, we, so I, I remember coming to visit her the first time, and I guess the life-changing thing for me was, you know, she lived on, uh, if you're familiar with West Hollywood, she lived on Larrabee, and up the street from Larrabee with Tower Records, you know, you have Tower Video in one corner, and then you brought Street and U.S. Tower Records, and I remember like it's the first or second day. First of all, arriving in America. I mean, I'd been to New York. Uh, actually, no, I think I went to LA first with my mom. We had been to Florida, like to Disney World with my dad, like when I was younger, like seven or eight or something. 
but I think my first time coming to LA was uh, 82. And so, you know, went to, went walking around the Sunset Strip. It was totally surreal. The Marlboro guy, billboards and, you know, all these, uh, all these movie billboards. And it really felt like what I'd seen in movies and it was really exciting. And I just felt like, you know, I got to live here. I got to move here. I want to be here and I want to do all these American things. And, you know, I would see like a, a Mack truck drive by and it was like, wow, you know, people would look at me like, why is this kid so like impressed by a big truck driving by? But I used to have like big stickers of Mack trucks on my, my wallpaper, you know, in France as a kid because it was like the American dream, you know, all these big things and, and, uh, you know, Fender guitars and Mack trucks. <laughs> Pepsi, I mean, the Coca-Cola, you know, bottles, stickers on the wall, you know, so I kind of like had this reverence for all, all American things, not at all thinking about the fact that they were just these big businesses, but at the time it was just American icons, you know, so walked to Tower Records and I found like it was my Mecca, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe this place existed and I would spend entire days you know, even though I was in America and we would go to the beach and get his beach and all that stuff, which was pretty impressive too, the first time, uh, you know, Malibu, where I live now, and it was like, was like larger than life. So it was just like, wow, you can have a, a road like this that's on the ocean, you know, like there's the ocean and houses that you can walk down to the beach. And you know, it was all crazy to me. But I would say that the Tower Records is the thing that, marked me the most and made me want to come back was like I can't wait to come back and go to that Tower Records again and you know that's where I first heard Prince and his music you know obviously changed my life but I heard it in that Tower Records on Sunset this song called Let's Pretend We're Married from the 1999 album and you know I was instantly hooked this was the era of Thriller too so at the time I was like the biggest Michael Jackson fan in the world and, and Thriller was everything until I heard 1999 and I was like oh, wow, okay, this is even, you know, more my my uh, cup of tea, you know. Still love Thriller, obviously, but then I found my idol, you know, Prince was like my, I had Del Mondo as a kid, the actor, Serge Gansberg, the musician, you know, both French, and then Prince became my first, you know, American idol, hero, and uh, that all happened in that Tower Records, you know, so that, that was a big, you know, discovery for me coming to America. Did you almost feel like it was a lifetime goal achieved when you finally got to work on Prince material? I mean, I still pinch myself, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it really is like uh, uh, surreal. I mean, the first time I met him, I think was in Paris, and I was a kid, you know, I was, uh, let's see, uh, 15 years old, 14 years old or something when I met him because my dad called me and said, Prince is at this club and my dad was a total socialite, friends with all these club owners and so, you know, they let me in and I got to meet Prince and, and uh, was like, oh, this guy actually exists, you know, I'd seen him live a bunch of times already, but yeah, so the first time I worked on a project, you know, while he was still around was surreal and sitting down with him and talking was completely surreal and and now working on legacy projects since, you know, unfortunately he passed away four, four years ago, four and a half years ago. I feel like that's one of the biggest parts of my destiny is to work on this stuff. You know, it, it always, there was always a, a connection to Prince, you know, and anybody who knows me knows that 
how you know how strange it would be like I would run into the guy like you know somebody you just wouldn't see out you know in general you know nobody's like oh yeah I saw Prince today or this but I was like literally I remember I went to see the movie So Fish uh, with Whoopi Goldberg and like sitting in the second to back row and with my friend Gil and then all of a sudden I hear a little commotion behind us and I turn around and there's Prince and his bodyguard and a couple of people going to see this movie you know and I'm like how the hell out of all the theaters in the world I end up in the movie theater with Prince you know so there's like these funny these funny signs along the way you know and uh so yeah that's probably out of all the you know out of all the projects I do that's still the one that excites me the most and that blows me away the most you know that I get to work on this stuff and, and especially the most recent one the Sign of the Times box set I just want to give you a huge congratulations on that it's been a long time okay. since I've picked up a box set and just honestly felt goosebumps from it. You just, oh, well. you can spend hours just looking at that thing. Don't even put the album on yet. Just look at like the work that went yeah, into yeah, it yeah. from, from you. It's fucking stunning. And I just want to thank you for yeah, like, well, keeping you know, that going. The team, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm just a part of it, but the team, you know, the uh, Michael Howe, you know, running the, the, and and the research and everything and, and Trevor Guy and, and uh, Alex Senta on the design you know it's just, it's just a great team it's a small team but you know I was so honored to be part of that team and then also that I got to write liner notes and, and that Dave you know Chappelle would uh, agree to write like his first liner notes ever for this project because obviously he cares deeply about Prince and, and Lenny Kravitz writing a forward you know it's like one of those things where you can call on your friends that you know, would not do these things unless they had a certain level of respect, you know. It, it's a really nice feeling to to feel uh, like, wow, I, I have my name in the Sign of the Times box set, which came out the year I moved to the States. You know, I officially moved in 87, and that was the soundtrack to my life. It's my favorite album of all time. You know, it's like, well, shit, how do I top this? You know, that, that's uh, pretty crazy, so... So yeah, it's an incredible, incredible team effort, and uh, you know, I'm just happy to be part of it. And you know, I'm, I'm staring at it. It's on my one of my speakers, and and yeah, it's just uh, an amazing thing. And it's amazing for for fans to know the amount of respect that goes into it. That it's actually put together by people who respect Prince so much. It's not just like a money grabbing thing. It's an actual, you know. Prince lovers best, you know. It's like everybody that works on it is doing it for the love of Prince and, and you know, respectfully and, and knowing exactly, you know, what to use, what not to use. You know, I mean, we can't know what Prince would have wanted, but we know that, you know, we're not going to put anything that's like sub-quality or sub-par, you know, that's something that he would have never put out. My feeling is like, you know, that it's done really, really well. And so I'm very proud to be a part of it. What do you think about the estate bringing out some of the vault stuff? Do you think that it just should have stayed in the vault? Or are you happy to no, see these? No, it's, it's, listen, I, I actually am one of the few people in the world who have gotten to see, like, you know, I went to Prince's house once. And when I had worked on, I designed the uh, Miles Davis Bitches Brew 40th anniversary box set. So this is 10 years ago because now the 50th anniversary is now. And, you know, I had a whole conversation 
with Prince about this, and you know, he was he was basically initially was like, well, who's doing this, and how do you know Miles would have wanted this, and blah blah blah. You know, was kind of aggressive about it. And then in the end, when I when I uh, you know went to take it back, because I was like, oh, he doesn't want this. He's like, no, 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 I want this. And he was talking about how well it was done, and how he he's like, I need to do this with all my albums. And so he literally said, like, I need to do this with all my albums. And at the time, I thought, like, oh, this is my chance to do this with him. You know, I remember saying, yeah, hey, I can help you put all that together. You know, it never happened in that way. But you know, the the time when he passed, he had he had agreed. Um, with Warner Brothers to release the Purple Rain, you know, expanded edition, the like edition with unreleased material and stuff. So he was already in the process of doing that himself, you know. So, and and there are several interviews. He didn't do a lot of interviews. But there are several interviews that I have seen myself with my own eyes, where he said, "Well, people ask him about the vault and you know what's going to happen with all this music," and and he says, "You know, this music will be heard." but it'll probably be after I'm gone, you know? So, so there is no, you know, some people try to say, well, they, they're doing this, they're, they're pillaging his catalog, his vault and doing all this. And, you know, he wouldn't want that. But I'm like, I've literally seen footage of him saying that the stuff will come out. So, I, and I think this guy was like the greatest genius music has ever seen. The most prolific artist music has ever seen. I don't think there's anybody else on his level, you know, you see the thousands of outtakes there in his vault. And why should we deprive the world of such a gift, you know, because going back to what we were saying earlier, there's not a lot of music on the, there's no music on that level in popular music today. So it's like, why deprive the world of these incredible outtakes and things and whole albums and, you know, live records and studio records and demos and things that, are, are better than anything out there. You know, why deprive ourselves of it? And it also, you know, helps keep his legacy alive and it helps keep his estate going and it helps keep Paisley Park going, you know, as a museum and, and as a studio. So I don't have any problem with it. And I think the way it's been done is very respectful and, and you know, there, there's no, uh, no embarrassing stuff and, you know, nothing being done disrespectfully so and that's why I think the team that is in place is, is really the best for it and, and you know Michael House is definitely the guy because he has so much passion for it yeah I firmly believe that the world has not been the same since Prince passed away so but I want to switch a little bit why did you decide to move into journalism and go to New York was there a particular story at the time that you really wanted to develop? Uh, I mean, I wanted to move to New York because it was time for me to, to uh, you know, leave L.A. And, you know, I just felt like I wanted that experience of, you know, living alone and, and uh, you know, move out of, of my mom's house and, and go experience life. You know, I was 19 and you know, go experience life and and survival, you know, on my own. So I moved to New York and went to NYU. I got, I liked the idea of journalism because in high school I had this teacher named uh, uh, Tony Perone who I became really close to and I was doing journalism classes with him and I really liked it. And I thought initially, you know, I'd want to be in journalism 
because I used to love, you know, in journalism class, going to write stories, investigative stories and stuff. But then, you know, by the time I went to NYU, I had to survive in New York. I had to figure out a way to make money to pay for living in New York. And so I got a, you know, I started doing little graphic design stuff on my own, self, self-taught kind of event, and uh, basically found jobs doing graphic design and kind of bullshitted my way into those jobs because I didn't have like a portfolio or anything. So I kind of made like fake portfolios, which was my first, uh, my first design, uh, uh, experiments, you can say. And, you know, I was able to get a job doing that. And then I really enjoyed doing it. And basically I finished, you know, my, uh, three years at NYU because I'd come from CSUN in, in uh, California. And then basically by the time I graduated, I was working, you know, as a graphic designer. So it was, I was like, okay, well, journalism, you know, it's not going to happen. And I didn't even really have the passion for it like I did with the design stuff. So that's, you know, that's how Well, how much freedom did artists like Marvin Gaye give you in the early days? Or did you always just have pure artistic control? Well, I mean... You know, you, Marvin Gaye is not a good example because that's all like legacy work that I've done. You know, like box sets, and, true, yeah, okay. and things like that. So, so I, you know, I was I was uh, probably eleven when Marvin died. So, you know, I didn't get I didn't get to work with you know a lot of these people in person. But but when I did start, I think like one of the first projects I worked on was like a, a Fishbone record that was this guy Stozo that was an illustrator. And, and uh, we did like Weapon of Choice album called Hyperspike that was produced by Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam and Parliament, uh, P Funk, The Pearl Foam. You know, so I started kind of doing design. The first records I worked on was for those guys, and those were kind of led by the illustration style of Stone So I would say. You know, I had to create freedom to do the graphic design however I wanted, just following, you know, using his illustration. And then uh, as I started working with other artists, you know, I just um, always had an element. I I guess I I felt like it was lucky or something that whenever I would show some artist something, they would automatically be like, that's it. You know, and it was like my first comps were always like the final comps. And, And one thing that I've noticed throughout my career is a lot of times people like when they reject the reject the first comps, and then they make me do a fifteen twenty more comps, and then they're like, actually, you know, the first one was really good. Let's go back to that, you know. But for what I do, I always try to have you know as much artistic freedom as as uh, possible, and you know, I, I get to I'm lucky to work with people who trust me in that way, you know, and let me do what I do. And, uh, I think, you know, after a while, when you have a career, of you know, whatever it is, 25 years now, or whatever it is, um, I don't really count years, but, you know, I think people know when they, when they work with you, they know, like, this is not a guy who I'm just telling like exactly what I mean. You know, I'm just going to let him do his own thing. Can you take us through your relationship with Quentin Tarantino? Well, Quentin was, uh, you know, it was, it was a project. Um, so, 
seven, I guess it would have been. Um, I had a an idea because you know being so obsessed with uh, black exploitation stuff in my poster collection, I had the idea to put a book together, and you know that would be a a uh, poster book with stories and things, but you know it was mainly like a black exploitation poster coffee table book. And so I started designing it. I lived in New York at the time and I worked for uh, my first or second real job, which was a, a senior packaging designer, graphic designer at American Eagle Outfitters and in Bryant, the offices in Bryant Park in New York. So that was my first like real job. You know, I had a really good salary. I was kind of set. I was the youngest guy in the company and and, you know, just kind of like couldn't believe I had already had gotten this job and, you know, pretty much out of NYU. I had one job before that I didn't like, so I quit and then was recruited by American Eagle. And so while I was at American Eagle, I was very successful. I like kind of done the whole like graphic, you know, I was uh, rebranding all the graphics and did, you know, the T-shirt collections and all the packaging and it was a pretty intense job. I went to Hong Kong a lot. I traveled to Japan and Europe and stuff for research and, and, uh, was, you know, was set, but there's something in me that felt like, you know, both my parents are fashion designers, both very successful. That's why my mom had moved here in the eighties because she was the head designer for Jag, which was a big, uh, you know, Jag and Festoon was one company. And so I felt, you know, like this is, this is what my, uh, my family does. And, you know, I need to be doing that. Working at American Eagle didn't feel it in my heart. It was like it was, I was very successful, but I didn't feel like this is really what I want to do, you know, work on, on clothing for the rest of my life. So I always knew I wanted to work in music and film. And so I basically started this book, you know, that I was going to put out. I was going to find a publisher. I started designing it. And a friend of mine calls me one day and says, hey, I was reading the LA Weekly and there's an interview with Quentin Tarantino and he talked about how he's putting out a book about black exploitation films. And, and I was like, you got to be kidding. And, you know, I was devastated because I was like, how do you compete with Quentin Tarantino? That's not possible. My project is, is dead and blah, blah, blah. And I was really, really depressed. And I thought that was going to be my way out of, you know, working in this fashion stuff that I don't want to do. And... My ex, you know, uh, Rebecca at the time, who we weren't married yet, but we were soon to be married and have kids and all that. She was pushing me every day, like, you need to contact Quentin Tarantino. You know, he would totally dig you. You guys have the same interest. And, you know, he's doing this book, but what's to say you can't do it with him? And I, you know, I was more defeatist and thought, like, there's no way. And so she basically annoyed me enough uh that I, you know, picked up the phone, found the number for his production uh, company, Band Apart in L.A., and, you know, spoke to this woman and, you know, said, hey, I'd like to speak to Quentin Tarantino, and she basically hung up the phone, and I kept calling and said, you know, I'd like to talk about this book or whoever's doing this book, and, and uh, you know, they kept hanging up on me at a certain point. I, I got aggressive in a way and said to this woman, like, listen, you know, I'm not going to stop calling, but mostly when Quentin finds out the collection that I have and the items that I have that, we, that he would want in his book, you're going to get fired because 
he's going to blame you for the book not being as good as it could have been. And she was like, hold on one second. You know, I'm like, put me on pause for like 20 minutes. And she comes back and she's like, let me have your number. Like really like huffing, puffing, you know? And, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. Cause she normally tells me to fuck up, you know? And, uh, so the next day I get a call from this guy. Hey, this is Jerry Martinez. I, I, um, you know, here you have some interesting stuff for, for, you know, I'm, I'm doing this book with Quentin, but you know, it's finished, but I mean, we wanted to hear what you had. And, and uh, so I was like, oh damn, it's finished, you know? And so I started talking about what I have. He's like, oh, that sounds really interesting. You know, we are doing this, we're doing that. He's like getting into the, the book, but he's like, oh, it's too bad you don't live in Los Angeles. Cause you know, maybe you could have worked with it, with us on this, you know? And so I said, Hey, I can come to LA. And the guy was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'll quit my job today. And like, you know, I give him notice and then I'll be in LA in two weeks, you know? And the guy was kind of freaked out. He's like, all right, well, we got to go hang up the phone. And then like called me, I figured, I felt like, shit, I screwed this up. You know, he calls me a couple of days again. Hey, Jerry again, you know, were you serious about coming out to LA? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, the book is like almost done, you know? And we, we uh, thought it might be interesting to see what you have. And so he says, you know, Oh, and there was a, that the best part of the story was that as he was talking, I was hearing somebody like next to him who was like, you know, Pamela Greer is Foxy Brown. Pamela Greer is coffee. You know, somebody was doing like radio spots with that uh, Adolf Caesar kind of voice. And uh, Adolf Caesar being the guy who used to do all those radio spots. I'm looking at a stack of a lot of them that I collect right here, but... Um, and then um, I realized that Quentin next to this guy, Jerry, is following me there in the car. And all of a sudden, I'm like, here I am one step away from Tarantino. And so, I, so he's like, well, if you're serious about this, why don't you come to the office, you know, on uh, Friday? It was like a Monday or Tuesday when he called me. He's, you know, well, we can talk about it. But, you know. I doubt you're going to come from New York for this meeting, but if you want to come, you know, Friday, blah, blah, blah. so of course I booked my ticket. I show up that Friday, like a little early. This woman is like, who are you? I was like, I'm not the guitar. Oh, she like, she's like, oh my God, not the guy from the phone, you know, like really, really annoying. She's like, what are you doing here? I said, I have an appointment with Jerry Martinez. She's like, no, you don't. I was like, no, I do. He, you know, I flew in from New York. And so she's like, well, let me check. And then she comes back. She's like, well, you know, uh, if you don't mind waiting here, da, da, da. I wait for like an hour and a half. And then the guy comes in looking like Newman from Seinfeld with a cowboy hat. And he's like, Hey man, uh, I really didn't think you were going to come. I didn't expect this to be happening. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You tell me show up on Friday. I'm going to show up on Friday. And he's like, yeah, well, you live in New York. So this whole thing, you know? And so he's like, well, uh, we, you know, we got stuff going on in this book. Why don't you, I mean, it's like crazy. He's like, why don't you, you know, I'll bring it to my office and why don't you design a chapter, you know, for the book? And I got to go run some errands. We're working on this Jackie Brown movie and, you know, we're, we're just finishing it. And I, you know, so basically he leaves me in his office all day and, you know, people like Lawrence Bender, all these people kept walking by like Tuesday guy in the office and, designed the chapter. I had brought a bunch of, of posters with me and press books and things, luckily. 
and there's like an old school, you know, like digital camera connected to the computer. So I was photographing posters and, and laying them out and all this stuff. And, and then I find out they had barely started the book. It was just like, you know, all bullshit that they were finished. And when he came back, he was like, you know, really liked what I did. He's like, well, you know, too bad you, you don't live here. We can, we could use your help. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go back, you know, Monday, I'll quit my job and I'll be back like, you know, in like 10 days or two weeks. And they were like kind of freaked out. In that, in, at some point that day, Quentin came to the office and I met him and he was like, you know, like, so what, what's your story? What the fuck? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like super hyper, like, you know, I say we start talking about movie posters and he realized I knew what I was talking about. And he was like, oh, well, this, you know, hey, maybe, uh, maybe we'll work with you on this. And so, sorry for such a long story, but it's like a very pivotal story in my career, you know. And so I end up quitting my job. I come back to L.A., work on the book. While I'm working on the book, they're like, hey, we, we've got these movie posters uh, we need help on if you want to work on this stuff. Because Jerry would, would do the, the illustration. He's an amazing painter. And so we did like a, some Jackie Brown stuff. And then they're like, Oh, Quentin's releasing, uh, Sonatine, the beat Takeshi film. So I got to design the poster for that. And then he did, uh, there was switchblade sister. There was the beyond by Lucio Fulci. So I was like all of a sudden designing these posters for Jerry, you know, and for Quentin. And, uh, so yeah, I ended up designing the book and, you know, got spent a bunch of time with them and, and, uh, you know, really like started, uh, we used to do like uh, little movie watching set, you know, little screening sessions. And, you know, everybody would, would talk and uh, bring a film and talk about a film. And I had, you know, Candy Tangerine Man was my favorite, which they started calling me Candy Tangerine Man, which is why my company, why my Instagram is Candy T Man. And a lot of people don't know what that's about. But that was, you know, this guy who is a pimp at night and a family man by day. It's just like, I was, Somehow, like, I was, I was like, this is like me, which is <laughs> not at all, but it was just kind of a funny thing. So, uh, so yeah, so I got to work with him on all that stuff. And then the, the, my greatest moment with Quentin is, like, I kind of felt like, you know, I was young and my contract was was kind of stupid. I didn't have, you know, at the time, I didn't have, like, a lawyer look at the contract and all that stuff. And, and so I didn't end up the credit. I didn't end up getting the credit. And this had nothing to do with Quentin, but this was more on, you know, the, the team of the of author and, and uh, his crew. You know, I ended up getting like an associate designer thing, which I was sour about because I designed the whole book. And, you know, even on the back cover, it just had Jerry's name as the art director designer. It's like my first experience in not getting credit for what you do, which, you know, happens a lot in this business. And so then they were having a, uh, a book signing at this place called Hollywood Book and Posters on, on uh, Hollywood Boulevard that I think is probably long gone now. And I came because I was like, hey, I'm a big part of this book. I even brought in some of the people, you know, that were interviewed in the book. <laughs> Excuse me. And then uh, so I was like, I want to be there for this, you know, so they told me about it. And But I wasn't, I wasn't on the table. It was like Arthur Marks, uh, Jack Hill, a lot of, you know, famous directors from Black Petition era. Rudy Ray Moore was there. Uh, who else was there? And it was like, you know, all these, all these legends. Maybe Antonio Fargus. 
you know, who's more famous as Huggy Bear and Stasky and Hutch. And so I was just kind of in the audience side with my family and, you know, people like excited about the book coming out. And at one point, Quentin looked at me and he's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? And I was like, hey, <laughs> he's like, no, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I thought he was upset that I was there, you know, like something like maybe he's upset I'm, I'm here as part of the team because they don't consider me for, you know, this whole thing. And I had been kind of downplayed. My work had been kind of downplayed by the other guys. So I was like almost embarrassed that I was there. And all of a sudden, Quinn's like, dude, if I'm sitting behind this table, you got to be sitting behind this table. You put this, you know, a lot of this book together and you designed it and blah, blah, blah. And he literally had a chair pulled up and had me sit next to him to sign, you know, 500 books or whatever it was. And the first person in line was Billy Idol. I'll never forget that. Because I also had him sign my book. But, you know, that was like such a great experience. It was a learning experience. And, um, you know, was a very pivotal experience in my career. Some years later, uh, when I, I did a lot of, as I was saying, a lot of catalog work with Universal Music, they were putting together the uh, 10th anniversary edition of Fall Fiction. It was like a DVD, deluxe DVD and deluxe CD. And they, uh, they weren't able to get Quentin's approval on using bonus material and like a second disc with bonus material in an interview he had done. And it was like the first time I realized like, you know, my, the power of connections. Like I reached out to Quentin through Julie, his, his assistant at the time and was like, Hey, this got, you know, this got declined for universal, but you know, I got hired as the designer for the Pulp Fiction thing. And is there any way, you know, you could do this? And I remember getting a phone call from, I think it was uh, Pat Lawrence, who was a friend who's passed away since at Universal, saying, like, man, you're a rock star. Quentin just signed up on us doing this. And I was like, oh, that's how it works. You know, you build this connection and you do good work. You know, you're good to them. Show that you could be the best worker under any circumstances. And even in the case of the book, I never, like, went public or raised hell about, like, ah, I didn't get the credit I deserved. You know, it was, like, something that, you know, bothered me for a long time. But... I got to see, like, okay, cool. You know, another time, a guy contacted me saying, like, hey, I have these uh, original paintings from Black Exploitation posters by this guy, George Akimoto, who did, like, Black Caesar, Coffee, Bucktown, Slaughter. Slaughter's big ripoff, did a hell up in Ireland, a lot of the famous movie posters. And the guy was like, oh, Quentin Tarantino told me to reach out to you because he wants to buy all of them, but he wanted to know if you wanted to buy any of them so he doesn't, like, buy all of them if he wants. So sorry, like... Even though it's like not somebody I'm close with, it's not somebody I've worked with since then. I know that there was that, you know, that mutual respect. And I, I hope at some point, you know, we'll get to do something together again. Because every time I've seen him, I saw him a couple of years ago, went to dinner uh, with my friend Lee Rasmussen, who I used to be roommates with, who's close to him. And it was just like such a cool, like, oh, wow, you're the guy who did what it is, what it was, which is the book, you know. And uh, so that'll probably be... Uh, to be continued kind of thing. So sorry for like the two hour story on the Clinton thing. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take log stories all day. But did you think that... So, you like, can edit them. <laughs> oh, I, I don't need to edit that. I, it's fantastic. <laughs> but did you think that after your work with some of the most important musicians of all time, that the film world was going to be so eager to try and snatch you up from guys like Scorsese to... Harry Potter and, and the Terminator? 
Well, you know, it's it's interesting because that all happened, you know, because I was working uh, with the labels and people knew how fast I worked. And so when, you know, Warner Brothers would have to do these, these crazy, you know, uh, overnight soundtracks, you know, they always said, like, we've got the guy, you know, so whether it was like the Harry Potter or, or Transformers, I did a few of those you know, Spider-Man 3, they would say, like, hey, we've got a guy who not only can act as, like, an entire agency. I mean, I've had people tell me that before. Like, you work fast. Like, you did this package faster than an agency that has, like, 30 people working, you know, and that's what had happened with Spider-Man 3. And then I, I would design posters for the soundtrack, and then, like, hey, we want to use this for, you know, the DVD or blah, blah, blah. So a lot of times I would create something on the music side. I think it happened with Strangers in Fiction, which I worked on. And you know, they would just uh, use some of the material. So it's normally kind of the other way around because, you know, in design soundtracks, you just use key art. But sometimes I would come up with something different and the studios would love it so much, you know, they would push it or use it or something else. And so, uh, you know, and then in other cases, like uh, uh, the Iceberg Swim documentary or Amazing Grace, Aretha Franklin or Mar uh, Marley, the Kevin McDonald documentary on Marley, you know, I get to create the art from scratch completely, which I really, you know, love doing. And so I think, you know, people sometimes don't realize that I'm doing all these, you know, these different things. And it's always cool, you know, when you when you uh, meet somebody and they, you know, uh, Michael Mann, I think, was one of them. I met him and uh, I did the Miami Vice soundtrack. He was like, oh, usually soundtracks, like, I don't even look at it. They look so shitty, like, it just, you know, they're like, man, that was really cool. And I get that, not to toot my own horn, which it sounds like I'm doing, but I, my point being that I'm so passionate about the work that I'm not just going to, like, throw the movie poster and, you know, stack the tracks on the back and call it a day. Like, I know that Quinn had really loved the uh, the uh, deluxe Pulp Fiction CD because I just went all out inside, you know, in the booklet. And uh, I hope they reissued on vinyl. What's happening now is because vinyl has gotten so popular like some of these soundtracks that I did on CD originally, like the Transformers one and The Departed are now, you know, we get to reissue them on vinyl. It's nice to see the artwork, you know, on the larger scale. But it's a great feeling, you know, it's a great feeling to know that, you know, you can be uh, involved in projects like that. Like I did a, a, the movie The Nice Guys a few years ago and I did a coffee table book for Rizzoli, which is how I came into it. And then, Joe Silver comes to my house and is like, my apartment at the time, and is like, holy shit, you do this, and oh, wow, this poster, and, you know, it's like, it's like I live in a little museum, you know, so they get really excited. Well, you should work on the soundtrack as well, and you should work on this. And so something that starts with one end of the, you know, like designing a book, I end up doing, like, one of the coolest uh, deluxe vinyl packages I've ever done for the movies and nice guys and working on the, you know, all the peripheral stuff because of like people see the passion that I have for it. And I think that's a lost art really is so much of that, especially in film, you know, so much of that is just kind of busy work, production work, you know, people just doing their job, which I totally get. And that's, you want, you want that, you know, but I don't treat anything like that, you know, so. You know, even even going back to just just an example, as I'm staring at the time of the time spots, it's like 
just to think of how crazy that all the, you know, if, if you have it, if you know, the one that's like the B-size and 12-inch mixes, when you open it up, the gatefold is a collage of records, 12 inches and 45 and albums. It's like to think that that's my collection, that's all my records that I loan to the printer state to scan, to use it. I mean, how surreal is it that I'm the kid in Paris who was buying all that stuff and now it's all in the official box set. Same thing with the 1999 box set. I'm like, how crazy is it that that's my records in there? Like, it sounds like no big deal to anybody who would just be like, yeah, whatever, we could get those records. Maybe we couldn't, and we can find some of them, some of them we can find. But the fact that I end up, you know, with that stuff being in the official releases is kind of mind-boggling to me and really says something about passion and destiny. And I believe that that's, uh, that's my biggest uh, thing is, is passion destiny. Well, speaking of box sets, that Jane's Addiction box set you helped design is something of true wonder. Was there anything that you left out of the final product or really any final products that you have really wanted to get in? Well, okay, the Jane's Addiction one is like one of my proudest moments. You know, not only because I got a Grammy nomination for it, but that was like, such a cool thing to be able to say, hey, by the way, I want to make the cabinet, you know, it's called the Cabinet of Curiosities. And it started with uh, going to an exhibition of Cabinets of Curiosities in L.A. and uh, with uh, my friend Hugh Brown, who was, who was used to be the head uh, creative at Rhino Records. And so it started with, with this, you know, like his idea of, of how cool would it be to do a package like this and then by the time I worked on it, he was no longer at Warner, no longer at Rhino. So, you know, I, I basically got given the uh, the project to do on my own, and I, I went nuts. Like, to tell you, I went nuts. Like, I had this cabinet in my house, this, this old uh, Balinese or Thai cabinet, you know, and I started, like, stuffing it with all this crazy stuff and Santeria stuff, and I was a big James Addiction fan. As a matter of fact, the first concert I saw when I moved to L.A. was Jay's Addiction. And uh, at Club X in L.A. in 87. So it was like, again, I saw them at the Palladium. And then, the, you know, when I realized that I'm working on the, on the artwork, what's the live concert? Holy shit, that's the Palladium show that I'm in the audience. And here I am designing this box set. You know, it's crazy. It's like, again, that destiny thing. And so I went nuts with that one, and I was like, hey, I want to do the, the, the wooden cabinet. Can we use wood, and can we do this, and can I put tarot cards, and can I put voodoo dolls? And So in that one, I really think I had, like, you know, pretty much the dream package, and it, it did really well. Obviously, it got nominated for a Grammy for it. I got to do, you know, all the still life photography is mine. So it was really like working on something from inception I probably worked on it for six months, you know, till it was like really ready to be handed over. So, you know, usually you don't spend that long on a, on an album package or a box set or something like that to be hours. But I went like mad scientist on that one. Uh, I think I'm trying to think of anything that I, that I didn't, that I wasn't able to include in anything that I've done, but to tell you the truth, I, I can't think of anything. But I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there have been examples, but right now, as, as uh, you asked me that question, I can't really think of, of anything. I mean, I, I do remember wanting, there's one thing in the James Addiction box where I'd wanted to scent it with incense, you know, and they said that that would be 
too much trouble and probably would smell up the uh, warehouses too much. <laughs> so I guess that's the one thing that I didn't, you know, didn't get. Well, do you think that you've helped pave the way for bands like Tool to put screens inside of their albums? And do you see yourself pushing the design game even further still in the near future? I mean, I hope so. You know, I definitely hope that people have taken inspiration, as I have from people before me. You know, I mean, my first, uh, my first like real label design work was like me trying to be Saldas, who was my graphic design hero. You know, who did all the Otto Preminger films and and you know, up until like even the Goodfellas title sequence and all that. You know, and like I look at some of that work and I'm like, oh wow, I wasn't even trying to hide how much I was like biting his style. You know, and, and so. I think influence is important, you know? Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, there's things I'm working on, uh, that I'm still, you know, trying to push the boundaries and a lot of it with the vinyl itself, you know, and, uh, I'm working on a really cool project, two cool projects right now that I can't mention, but both with, you know, favorite artists who I've worked with before and, uh, definitely doing something, you know, very special for, for a limited edition release. And uh, so you guys have to stay tuned for that. Is your primary goal when designing something to have it look good on your own shelf because you are a collector Absolutely. first and foremost? Yeah. Absolutely. I design it for myself. You know, just like any great musician will record a song for themselves, not because. You know, I, I, uh, not because the fans will like it or maybe it's going to be a hit, you know. A real musician is just going to do it because that's what feels right to them. And for me, it's like I'm sitting in my place and I see, like, stacks of vinyls that I've designed, like the new Ben Harper one. I see the, you know, these Prince box sets that are up there as well that I worked on. I see the Marvin Gaye and, you know, it's just crazy. I'm just like, wow, I got to work on all this stuff. And it's not that I worked on it, but I got to work. I had the fortune in and like the destiny thing of like working on these things and it, you know, kind of blows my mind, you know, that I, that I, uh, being a fan of all these artists that I, you know, Hey, I can throw a copy on the Marvin Gaye's here, my dear or trouble man, or the, the outtakes trouble man, more trouble that I designed. Like all these records that I want to listen to. It's not just that I designed them because I want to listen to them. And like how, how weird, you know, when I open the gate or whatever, I see my name in it while I'm, you know, playing it on the turntable. So definitely a surreal feeling to the best, you know, still is very, very weird. I think one of the coolest things that we can put towards the name Matthew Baton is the fact that you received the Knight in the Order of Arts and Letters from the French Republic in 2012. Does it still give you pride that your home country is heavily behind you? You know, I, uh, I, it really does, and the funny thing is I've never, I haven't really done much in France. You know, I've done, like, photo shoots and, and stuff, some fashion things, and, but I specifically picked for my book that, that's coming out soon, I specifically decided to go with a French publisher because I felt like, you know what, I've never, like, really done something. I haven't done an exhibition in France yet. Like, there's so many things I want to do in my, you know, home country. But that was very surreal, you know, with, with being, especially because what I was like, I was still in my 30s. And, you know, I had just gotten the Grammy nomination 
and for Jane's addiction. And it was just kind of felt like, whoa, this is so surreal to, you know, first of all, as a French kid, to be nominated for a Grammy was so unimagin- you know, unimaginable as it did, you know, when I used to watch the Grammys, you know, and just like, forget about winning him. Just the fact that I'm like, you know, here I am in the program, like it says my name and, and online and this, and it was completely surreal. And in the French, uh, the night in the order of arts and letters is something that, you know, they normally give to people that I thought were much more interesting, much more accomplished, much uh, wiser and older than I was. So that was, you know, really crazy. And they had a great ceremony and, you know, I got to share with my family and friends. And, you know, my mom was very, very proud. So that made me happy. You know, she's always proud. She's proud if I, like, do a line on a piece of paper, she'll say it's like Chagall or something. But, but uh, you know, it, it was very, very surreal. And definitely, you know, one of my proudest accomplishments. And, you know, hopefully a lot more to come, you know. But um, it was interesting to have those things, those two big things happen kind of within, you know, a year or so, one another, a couple of years. But, uh, that, you know, they always say, I mean, that's a, that's a, a very, uh, something you, something you really aspire to is having, you know, your own, your, your own, uh, people honor you, you know, your own country honor you. That's pretty special. Speaking of the new book, can you take us through it? What was the inspiration behind it, and what can we expect from it? Well, it's uh, so as you might as you might have seen online, but you know, the darker darker than blue is the name, and it's an exhibition that I had. I started in 2016 was the first the first exhibition in LA, then it went to Boston in 2017 in Miami, 2018, Frankfurt in 2019 and Westar Germany in 2019. Uh, I was supposed to have it in Paris and a couple other countries actually this year, but because of COVID, everything got shut down. But, um, so darker than blue, it's my own exploration through my travel of black communities all over the world. That's the, that's the main part of it. And then um, I have a, an obsession with photographing hands. So there's probably like 70 pages in the book. The 220-page book, there's probably like 70 pages of hand photography from a lot of legends, uh, from Quincy Jones and Harry Belafonte to Cicely Tyson and Sidney Poitier and you know, younger guys like Gary Clark Jr., Dave Chappelle, Lenny Kravitz, uh, Ben Harper, Common, you know, all over the spectrum of great artistry. And so I tell stories relating to some of the photographs. I have a, an introduction, sort of, you know, biographic, autobiographical um, intro. And then the highest honor is having people who wrote forwards in the book and those are Dave Chappelle, Common, Ben Harper, Lenny Kravitz, and legendary French photographer, my friend Jean-Baptiste Mondino, uh, who shot the Prince Love Sexy album cover and a million other, you know, Madonna and everybody else, Keith Richards, and he's a legendary photographer and with all the Dior campaigns and all that. So, you know, the fact that these people would validate my work uh, is another thing that, you know, blows my mind and I've, in the book, I also got other quotes and texts, you know, from 
people like uh, Robert Glasper, Gary Clark, Questlove, who else? Uh, Trevor Noah, Rafael Sadiq, Snoop Dogg, even Trombone Shorty, Sweetie Atkinson, who passed away earlier this year. So, I mean, it's just crazy to me. And so there's several chapters in the book. Each chapter has a foreword. And, you know, you'll see basically it's like my person, the personal side of my travels. You'll see like what I'm shooting on off days when I'm on tour with, you know, Dave or Lenny Kravitz or whoever else I might be, Ben Harper, whoever else I might be traveling and working with. You'll see them by just seeing their hands, but I'm telling stories about the relationship I have with them have with them and then you'll see you know basically this world through my eyes you know and it's it's interesting because i started that series in 2008 around the time obama was elected and now the book will come out you know as trump is taken out of office and replaced so it's like it's like really from one era to the end of another era and it wasn't meant to be that way and when i premiered the show and at the like a gallery in LA, uh, you know, all the stuff is shot on Leica, which I collect Leica cameras as well. And I'm the Leica ambassador. When the show first premiered, it wasn't even as relevant. The material wasn't even as relevant as it is now after all the protests. And I have a chapter, the last chapter in the book called the end of silence, sign of the times, incidentally, all the chapters have a song title in them. So, um, there's a chapter called What's Going On. There's a chapter called Living for the City. You know, it's just, I'll, I'll, I'll leave some of it to uh, surprise. But, so yeah, it's my most personal project ever. My most passionate, you know, as far as photography goes. And it kind of encompasses all of my worlds, but through the personal side of them. You know, the photos of celebrities that I have in them are not photos that were used, you know, for their marketing or for their album. So that's kind of interesting. It's, it's personal side of, of all of that. And uh, Quincy also gave me a quote. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's really amazing and surreal, and I cannot wait to hold it in my hand. It comes out in France in a couple of weeks, but now France is on lockdown, so it's probably going to be delayed. But it's printed in Venice, Italy, the best printer, uh, you know, in the world. So it's very exciting. And, you know, everybody, every photographer, every artist wants to have a book. So I've had a couple books that were more like exhibition catalogs, like self-cover catalogs, self-published. This is like a real um, book published by Noeg, the, the publisher in France. We do really amazing art books. And, you know, I'm going to be very, very proud of that. I'm sure I'm going to be finding some typos. <laughs> Spend a long time trying to find all the typos, but one of the things you just have to accept, you know, and find mistakes once you're holding in your hand. You mentioned being the Leica ambassador. How did that whole thing come to be? Uh, well, so I was always a, a you know huge fan of Leica cameras. Uh, my godfather in France, who's also a fashion designer, had given me a, a Leica Flex when I was a teenager. It's like basically the only Leica I own. And through working, so when I was on tour with Lenny, uh, I think it was about 2014 or so. Um, we met like all the, you know, the, the, the heads of Leica while we were in Germany. And this guy, Stefan Kyle, became a dear friend and was like a head of marketing and artist relations. And Lenny, uh, put together a show called Flash. And it was like a photograph of paparazzi and fans shooting. And it was a really great thing. And so I was brought on to design that book and to, 
to help curate the, the show and, you know, oversee the printing and everything. Cause Lenny, you know, in the Bahamas at that time, by the time the show was happening. And so, um, it was a fantastic show, fantastic book. And so in the previous, like what I said previously, the like people could not believe I was able to turn around this book in two weeks. Like how the hell did you put together design for the production end of it? Everything, everything got done in two weeks so they could make it for the first show. And that was, you know, for a book, that's kind of crazy to put together a book in that short amount of time. So then they were like, man, we should, you know, we love your work. And, and Stefan was like, Hey, we should do something with your photos. We, I, I've been looking at your photos. I love them. And then, the, you know, basically I got in with the Leica in the U S and, they saw I was shooting with our cameras, but they, you know, took it up a notch and, started, you know, started getting, uh, doing more work for them. And, you know, I was the Canon shooter on the tour, on tour, but then they started coming up with cameras that worked really well for me uh, to shoot on the road. So basically it became like a, a strong relationship. And then they, they told me they wanted to do my exhibition for 2016. And that's when the darker than blue thing happened. Initially, they wanted it to be like maybe I'd done a show uh, to tie in with Lenny's flash show called Ascension, and that we did in Vienna and in Sofia, Bulgaria, so in Austria and Bulgaria. And it was photos of Lenny. But I felt like for me, I would prefer if this is going to be my first. You know, I had one exhibition in 2013 called Travelogue. That was a mix of kind of everything I did. And if this was going to be like my first Leica exhibition. I want to do something more personal than, you know, the photos of Lenny, which we did in Europe. And then they said, well, maybe we do some of your nudes because we really love all these nudes you're shooting. And I said, no, this is the project that's most closest to my heart. And if I do anything, it's got to be this. And so they agreed and they loved it and they gave me my show and, and uh, it traveled around. And then they had a new camera coming up that they thought, you know, I could help promote called the N10P. So I became, you know, officially a Leica ambassador and was in the ads and the commercials and all that for, for this camera, which I still use a lot. And that was only a couple of years ago, 2018. And, you know, so we still have this, this strong uh, relationship and uh, I'm sure we'll work on more projects and more product together. I've also, uh, you know, discovering sometimes when you don't have your camera and how amazing an iPhone can be, you know, and, uh, so I've been shooting with the iPhones. I'm expecting a new one, actually, the, the 12 Max Pro, because uh, I'm blown away by the quality of the phone. I never thought I would hear myself say this, you know, because I'm such a, a such a snobby photographer, and it's got to be, you know, the $10,000 lens and stuff. But a couple times lately, I've been like, wow, this is pretty incredible technology, pretty incredible lens. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I have a... I have a Another source of uh, it kind of excites me to see what I can create. You know, it just seems so much easier, but actually, is not to do the quality of work you do to come up with something that I'd be like, you know, wow, I shot this on my phone. You know, but uh, I've had the cover of a book before shot with an iPhone photo. Nobody knows that, so I'm going to leave that in the air. You guys could figure out what it is. <laughs> like we know, figure it out. Well, you, you got to spend a lot of the summer working with Dave Chappelle again. Um, how did that whole relationship come to be, and what was the summer camp like this summer? Well, you know, I will say, well, how it came to be, 
you know, uh, I met, I have, to, I have to credit my friend Ruth Arzadi, who, who uh, is one of my dearest friends, who, you know, had started out a Prince's assistant and became his manager and was like kind of handling in true Prince nature. She was doing like everything. And I met her through Melody Asani, the, the great designer who recently got married to Flea from the Red Hot, Red Hot Chili Peppers, who I had met at a Prince party. So it's a, it all kind of funny. Everything ties back to Prince. And so, you know, one night I was at dinner. It's a funny story. I've told it before, but I'm, I'm at dinner with somebody and it was kind of, uh, this would have been 2008 and, you know, like a business kind of dinner. And then Ruth texts me. I remember it was in my Blackberry at the time. I think my mother's an iPhone, but 2008, I had an iPhone. And, and, uh, somehow when I think of our communications prior, like 2004, whatever, it was always Blackberry. But so she sends me a message saying, get over to the Gansavort. Uh, Prince is going to do, or she would say P is going to do a show on the rooftop. And, you know, nobody knows about it. Get your ass over here if you want to come. And, you know, don't bring anyone. So I'm like about to order dinner. It was like kind of late night. Nice thing about New York is you can eat late. Which growing up in Paris, that's what I normally do. And so I'm like looking at this guy, like, oh, I'm so sorry. I have this emergency. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, ah, you know, I can't really get into it because I can't tell the guy, hey, I'm flaking on you to go to a print show that you can't come to, you know? So I'm like, oh, it's a real emergency. You know, I didn't say anything crazy like family or something. I was like, I'll explain later. I'm so sorry. I got to go, but dinner's on me. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, dinner's on me next time. I'm so sorry. I got a flake. And I run over to the games board and I, you know, the name is like handwritten on the list. Like Luke had added me last minute. And so I like the guys like, okay, you go and there's like a huge crowd of people trying to get in. They can get in. And I'm like running to the elevator because I see about to close. And there's Dave Chappelle standing in the elevator. And I'm like, oh man, hi, you know, like Dave Chappelle, like, wow. And, you know, if you read the liner notes in the sign of the times box that I described that moment, you know, him playing tambourine in between sets and that whole very surreal thing, Dave doing a comedy set in between two print sets, you know, was like, I have to preface this by saying he was my favorite comedian. I used to watch Chappelle's show religiously. And I'm not lying when I've told before that I like, well, literally not go to like a birthday dinner or a wedding or something because there's a Du Chappelle show episode, you know, in those days. So he was like really, again, one of my favorites. And here I am, I end up in this place with him. And then flash forward three years later, uh, get invited to a Prince party uh, after the Grammys. And, you know, uh, I show up with Lenny who, who, you know, it's telling me it's too early to get to a Prince party. I'm like, no, no, come on, let's go. I was always pushing, you know, I'm always pushing everybody to, to go to the Prince party. I'd be really annoying. And so we get there. Of course, nobody's there. The party hasn't started. Letty sits on the couch and starts taking a nap. We shoot some pool for a bit. And, and Prince is, uh, you know, purple, uh, velvet, purple pool table. And, uh, and all of a sudden this guy, walks up to me. I'm walking around the house, kind of looking around. And this guy, Frederick Yone, legendary harmonica player, I would say like the best there is. 
comes up to me and he's like, hey, we met earlier at the Grammys. And you're French, right? So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, hey, well, I'm French too. We started talking, but I'm here with Dave, you know, and uh, obviously we got here too early. And I'm like, well, I'm here with Lenny. Obviously we got here too early. And Fred had also been playing harp with uh, Prim. And so we go up to Dave, and Dave somehow he's got like this miraculous uh, memory. He's like, I remember meeting you, you know, like, like I was like, he can't remember me from the Gems of War, but he said he did. And then we had this really fun night, you know, all talk, and it was like Prince and Lenny and Dave, you know, Prince finally showed up, and Fred and all, you know, uh, Janelle Monet performed in the living room. It was just like really cool. Misty Copeland was there with Prince. It was just a very memorable night. I've been to a lot of these parties, but this one because Dave was there. It was very memorable, and we kind of like made a connection that night, and then flash forward to 2015, so four years later, Ruth again called me and said, hey, I gave your number to Carla, who's Fred's wife, Dave's publicist. She's going to call you about maybe shooting, you know, some photos at the club. And, uh, you know, I think Dave might be coming back. You know, he had been pretty much underground at that time. You know, he basically, like, went away for 13 years after Chappelle's show. And so she calls me, hey, we do this thing uh, in Silver Lake, whatever. And... So I, I came up, I was like, well, this is like a dream for me, you know, to shoot Dave. It's like a complete dream. And I know he's not easily accessible, you know. He's not a person that you can just go photograph. And, you know, he doesn't allow phones or cameras in the show. So it was a big deal to me. So I meet him before. Again, he totally remembers me. I remember you from Princess Oscar. You know, we were talking with Lenny. But I was like, Jesus Christ, this guy's got like the memory of an elephant. What's going on here, you know? And... So I was like, yeah, that was me, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, he said, so, yeah, I hear you're going to shoot some photos. Just know, you know, I, I don't really like being photographed. You know, I don't uh, I, so I stay in the back as much as you can, you know, kind of disappear, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, I'm sitting in the back of the room and uh, kind of feeling like this is not what I do, like, Photos in a club of a bunch of crowds and Dave in the, you know, in the back is not really exciting. It doesn't represent my work. So, fuck it. I know he told me to stay back, but I'm going to go to the pit and start doing what I do. You know, so I kind of started shooting. I was getting funny looks from Dave. And then, like, I think Carla was like, came up to me and was like, no, you know, you can't shoot from the front. Blah, blah. So I was like, okay. So I got those photos. And then afterwards, Dave was like, hey, I don't know if, if you heard me. I was saying I prefer, you know, when people shoot from the back, like when I don't see them. And I was like, oh, sorry, yeah, but here, look at these photos. And he looked at the photos and he's like, oh, shit. All right, do whatever you want. <laughs> be whatever you be wherever you want to be. I was like, thank God. Because I can't imagine, like, shooting from the back of the room all the time. So, and then from then on, we developed this relationship. And then we did the, uh, the uh, first, uh, the Age of Spin, you know, the first Netflix special. Uh, in LA and so they called me to shoot all the photos for that which was super exciting you know and then uh, you know basically little by little he and I got closer and and uh, you know he started having me showing up and more things and then in 2017 he did uh, Radio City Music Hall residency for a month and I was supposed to be in Europe with Letty but something happened I can't remember exactly what but I I didn't need to go, so I, I said I couldn't do the day thing, but then I called and said I could. 
that was one of the most magical months of my life. You know, Miles, my son, came and assisted me for the whole thing and, you know, changed his life. I mean, everybody from, you know, Kendrick Lamar, Chance the Rapper, The Roots, I mean, it was like Chris Rock. It was, it was so many people. So that was like a first version of like summer camp thing at Radio City. And then, you know, earlier this year, I got to be the uh, official photographer for for summer camp, which was amazing and like surreal until July 27th when uh, Mo Amor, who's one of the comedians, amazing comedian, I also shot the photos for his Netflix special, The Vagabond. Uh, Mo Amor had a scooter and I decided I want to borrow his scooter to try it, you know, <laughs> just to see if maybe, since I'm always asking people for a ride in Yellow Springs, I can just get a scooter and get my own way around. And long story short, I crashed. I, you know, go to the ER, find out. The first night I found out my right arm was broken, they thought I had torn a rotator cuff on the left, but it actually turned out I'd broken both elbows, both shoulders, and I have a fracture in my hand. And so we had David Letterman arriving the following day to tape his just released my next guest, you know, needs no introduction episode with Dave. And so here I am in an ER, you know, hospital with the doctor telling me, you know, uh, you're not going to be able to use your arms for about three months. And here we are in the middle of the summer camp thing. Letterman arriving tomorrow. I was under contract to shoot stills for Netflix, not only Dave, but for Netflix for their show. And here I am, like, you know, feeling like paralyzed. Couldn't move my arms. And another, you know, to make a long story even longer, but, you know, called my son Miles. I flew out the next day. I started feeling a little move. You know, I was able to move my left arm a little, but right one is completely kaput. I can I couldn't move anything on my right arm. I'm right-handed, so basically had Miles help me like lift my arm onto the camera, and had him shoot as well and move the tripods around. And you know, I had to shoot on the tripod for the first time in my life because I couldn't hold the camera. And the next two months, then Julian, my younger son, came out and really stepped it up and turned into like a full like heavy duty assistant, even though he had never done it before. He had only helped me once before assisted me when I shot uh, Jason Momoa and Lisa Bonet's wedding. And that was torture for him because it was like a 10 hour wedding and he kept asking me for, to, if he could Uber home. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, this was crazy, but I did it. You know, I shot for the next two months with two broken arms and we managed to, you know, with him moving all the gear around and me shooting. And uh, so, it went into that crazy, crazy, you know, level, but it made it even more exciting in a way. It became kind of part of the story, you know, and it became part of the story. It became something that brought my son Julian and I like closer than ever, you know, and I got to see what a hard worker he was, which I didn't know he was, he could be that kind of hard worker, uh, you know, at 17 and then he turned 18 while he was there. So, I mean, it was just a, amazing experience and you know all the artists everybody came out that i got to photograph i mean it's just completely insane you know but once again something that only they can pull together in the middle of a global pandemic you know it's really crazy so yeah that's that well finally you've always had this revolutionary spirit in your work do you have any messages for everyone out there on the streets right now trying to make change well, I would say change is coming. 
but let's not take that. Let's, let me let me rephrase that. <laughs> Sorry, I was uh, my my brain just got a. So I would say change is coming, but it's only going to come with us not slowing down. We got to keep on it. You know, there's a quote by Bertolt Brecht that says, do not rejoice in his defeat, you man, for though the world that stood up and stopped the bastard, the bitch that bore him is in heat again. And that's really, you know, that's really where I think it is. Like, let's not think that this is like, okay, everything's going to be good now. Let's just, you know, enjoy our Starbucks and, and you know, uh, our $7 lattes and, and uh, you know, listen to Miley Cyrus and everything will be okay. You know, it's like we need to put in the work and we need to not slow down. And so the youth keeps, the youth needs to keep having that, you know, that, that angst they brought to the street and hopefully pave the way for a better day, you know? Well, Matthew, you are one of the most important framers of how current entertainment looks. And we all owe you a great deal of praise and accolades. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. Man, thank you for having me. I'm glad. I know we've been trying to do this for a long time, so. <laughs> thanks for your patience <laughs> of course hey i i knew that it would happen eventually so yeah th- thank you so much for coming on it, it really means a lot and not i think everybody needs to really take just a, just a great look at your work it's fucking amazing and i'm i'm really excited for the new book and i hope it does really well for you thank you so much man thanks for having me thank you for listening you can catch Matthew Baton at batonphoto.com. That's B-I-T-T-O-N photo.com. In his book, Darker Than Blue, out November 27th in the English and French language through Nuve Editions. And hopefully that it'll be out in the U.S. at Leica stores sooner than later in an official U.S. distribution next year. This concludes our broadcast day.